A Thousand Miles Up the Nile, Section 9. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Thousand Miles Up the Nile, by Amelia B. Edwards. Chapter 3. Cairo to Bedrashane, Part 3. The ordinary pay of a Nile sailor is two pounds a month, with an additional allowance of about three and sixpence a month for flour. Bread is their staple food, and they make it themselves at certain places along the river where there are large public ovens for the purpose. This bread, which is cut up in slices and dried in the sun, is as brown as gingerbread and as hard as biscuit. They eat it soaked in hot water, flavored with oil, pepper, and salt, and stirred in with boiled lentils till the whole becomes of the color, flavor, and consistency of thick pea-soup. Except on grand occasions, such as Christmas Day or the anniversary of the flight of the Prophet, when the passengers treat them to a sheep, this mess of bread and lentils, with a little coffee twice a day, and now and then a handful of dates, constitutes their only food throughout the journey. The Nile season is the Nile sailor's harvest time. When the warm weather sets in and the travellers migrate with the swallows, these poor fellows disperse in all directions, some to seek a living as porters in Cairo, others to their homes in Middle and Upper Egypt, where for about fourpence a day they take hire as labourers or work as shadouf irrigation till the Nile again overspreads the land. The shadouf work is hard, and a man has to keep on for nine hours out of every twenty-four but he prefers it, for the most part, to employment in the government sugar factories, where the wages average at about the same rate, but are paid in bread, which, being doled out by unscrupulous inferiors, is too often of light weight and bad quality. The soldiers who succeed in getting a berth on board a cargo boat for the summer are the most fortunate. Our captain, pilot, and crew were all Mohammedans. The cook and his assistant were Syrian Mohammedans, the dragoman and waiters were Christians of the Syrian Latin Church. Only one out of the fifteen natives could read or write, and that one was a sailor named Engedi, who acted as a sort of second mate. He used sometimes to write letters for the others, holding a scrap of tumbled paper across the palm of his left hand, and scrawling rude Arabic characters with a reed pen of his own making. This Engedi, though perhaps the least interesting of the crew, was a man of many accomplishments, an excellent comic actor, a bit of a shoemaker, and a first-rate barber. More than once, when we happened to be stationed far from any village, he shaved his messmates all around, and turned them out with heads as smooth as billiard-balls. There are, of course, good and bad Mohammedans, as there are good and bad churchmen of every denomination, and we had both sorts on board. Some of the men were very devout, never failing to perform their ablutions and say their prayers at sunrise and sunset. Others never dreamed of doing so. Some would not touch wine, had never tasted it in their lives, and would have suffered any extremity rather than break the law of their prophet. Others had a nice taste in clarets, and a delicate appreciation of the respective merits of rum or whiskey punch. It is, however, only fair to add that we never gave them these things except on special occasions, as on Christmas Day, or when they had been waiting in the river, or in some other way undergoing extra fatigue in our service. Nor do I believe there was a man on board who would have spent a para of his scanty earnings on any drink stronger than coffee. Coffee and tobacco are, indeed, the only luxuries in which the Egyptian peasant indulges 
and our poor fellows were never more grateful than when we distributed among them a few pounds of cheap native tobacco. This abominable mixture sells in the bazaars at sixpence the pound, the plant from which it is gathered being raised from inferior seed in a soil chemically unsuitable, because wholly devoid of potash. Also it is systematically spoiled in the growing. Instead of being nipped off when green and dried in the shade, the leaves are allowed to wither on the stalk before they are gathered. The result is a kind of rank hay without strength or flavor, which is smoked by only the very poorest class, and carefully avoided by all who can afford to buy Turkish or Syrian tobacco. Twice a day, after their midday and evening meals, our sailors were wont to sit in a circle and solemnly smoke a certain big pipe of the kind known as a hubble-bubble. This hubble-bubble, which was of most primitive make and consisted of a coconut and two sugar-canes, was common property, and being filled by the captain went round from hand to hand, from mouth to mouth, while it lasted. They smoked cigarettes at other times, and seldom went on shore without a tobacco pouch and a tiny book of cigarette papers. Fancy a bare-legged Arab making cigarettes! No Frenchman, however, could twist them up more deftly, or smoke them with a better grace. A Nile sailor's service expires with the season, so that he is generally a landsman for about half the year, but the captain's appointment is permanent. He is expected to live in Cairo, and is responsible for his dahabiyah during the summer months, while it lies up at Bulak. Rais Hassan had a wife and a comfortable little home on the outskirts of old Cairo, and was looked upon as a well-to-do personage among his fellows. He received four pounds a month all the year from the owner of the filet, a magnificent broad-shouldered Arab of about six foot nine with a delightful smile, the manners of a gentleman, and the rapacity of a Shylock. Our men treated us to a concert that first night, as we lay moored under the bank near Bedrashain. Being told that it was customary to provide musical instruments, we had given them leave to buy a tar and a darabuka before starting. The tar, or tambourine, was pretty enough, being made of rosewood inlaid with mother-of-pearl, but a more barbarous affair than the darabuka was surely never constructed. This primitive drum is about a foot and a half in length, funnel-shaped, molded of sun-dried clay like the kulas, and covered over at the top with a strained parchment. It is held under the left arm and played like a tom-tom with the fingers of the right hand, and it weighs about four pounds. We would willingly have added a double pipe or a coconut fiddle to the strength of the band, but none of our men could play them. The tar and darabuka, however, answered the purpose well enough, and were perhaps better suited to their strange singing than more tuneful instruments. We had just finished dinner when they began. First came a prolonged wail that swelled and sank and swelled again, and at last died away. This was the principal singer leading off with the keynote. The next followed suit on the third of the key, and finally all united in one long, shrill, descending cry, like a yawn, or a howl, or a combination of both. This, twice repeated, preluded their performance and worked them up, apparently, to the necessary pitch of musical enthusiasm. The primo tenore then led off in a quavering roulade, at the end of which he slid into a melancholy chant to which the rest sang chorus. At the close of each verse they yawned and howled again, while the singer, carried away by his emotions, broke out every now and then into a repetition of the same amazing and utterly indescribable vocal wriggle, 
with which he had begun. Whenever he did this, the rest held their breath in respectful admiration, and uttered an approving, Ah! which is here the customary expression of applause. We thought their music horrible that first night, I remember, though we ended, as I believe most travellers do, by liking it. We, however, paid them the compliment of going up on deck and listening to their performance. As a night scene, nothing could be more picturesque than this group of turbaned Arabs sitting in a circle, cross-legged with a lantern in the midst. The singer quavered, the musicians thrummed, the rest softly clapped their hands to time, and waited their turn to chime in with the chorus. Meanwhile the lantern lit up their swarthy faces and their glittering teeth. The great mast towered up into the darkness. The river gleamed below. The stars shone overhead. We felt we were indeed strangers in a strange land. End of section 9